Welcome to the Irish Legislation Podcast with me, Barry Ward, a podcast looking at legislation as it passes through Oireachtas Air in our National Parliament. Okay, you're very welcome to the sixth episode of the Irish Legislation Podcast with me, Barry Ward. And today we're going to talk about what is often known as the Brexit omnibus bill. It's the bill that will be put in place to deal with our with with the consequences for Ireland of the UK's exit from the European Union. But its actual name is the Withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union Consequential Provisions Bill 2020. And I'm joined for this episode by two experts on European affairs. My Oireachtas colleague um, Neil Richmond, TD, uh, Finnegal TD for Dublin Rathdown and former senator, and by Noel O'Connell, who's the chief executive of the European Movement Ireland since 2011. Thanks very much to. You you both for joining us. Um, I, I might start with you, Neil. Um, obviously, this is a bill that has now been published and is going to start its path through the Iraq to starting in the Doyle. You're the Fine Gael spokesperson on European affairs. Um, tell us what's in this bill. What are the big takeaways from it? Well, it's already started. It came into the Doyle on Wednesday night. Uh, I've already made my contribution, my 10 wonderful minutes of prose about the merits of this bill. This is essentially the second time a bill like this has been put through. The first one, which was originally known as the Brexit Omnibus Bill, was brought in by then Tónishta Simon Coveney uh, a year and a half ago. And that was brought in in the case that the UK would crash out of the, the EU with no deal, no withdrawal agreement. And that went through when I was a senator, we had an eight-hour debate in the senator, and it was a real, um, I wouldn't call it a last-minute bill, but it was a bill that had to get through in a, in a very tight time frame. So things have moved on. We do have a withdrawal agreement, and we can park the issues of the threat to that on the internal market bill till later on. I know Noel wants to speak on that. But we have the situation that we don't have uh, an agreement between the EU and the UK for a future relationship yet. Um, hopefully we will have one by the next rolling deadline, that's the 18th of November, but we just don't know. And so this bill is introduced, it's been the, in the ether since the summer, um, it's introduced to cover off lots of different areas. So even though it's been taken through by Simon Coveney, it's not restricted to just matters in foreign affairs. It covers, it's in 21 parts and it takes from, I think, 14 different topical areas. And when I spoke last night, um, there's a couple of key things that it it makes sure that is resolved. So things like social welfare payments, ensuring those that are entitled to a British pension can still access it post-Brexit. There's a big emphasis in the second and third parts of the bill in relation to health and healthcare provision. So that ensures that we can still have cross-border north-south healthcare. So people from Donegal can continue to go to Ochnagalvin Hospital in Derry. People from Belfast can come down. Certain cancer therapies are only offered in Dublin. Certain neurological procedures as well. It also means that um, Irish citizens in Northern Ireland are still able to benefit from the European Health Insurance Card. Now, this is something that got quite a bit of a run in the Brexit here press during the summer. And the daily, I think it was the Daily Telegraph splashed with the EU is stopping us um, being able to take advantage of the European Health Insurance Card. What a vengeful, horrible mood. Now, anyone who knows what the European Health Insurance Card is, it means that EU citizens can access health care in all other EU member states. Big problem is when you leave the EU, you no longer have that ability. You're not paying into it. However, the Irish government has taken the very sensible, mature position that we want to ensure that this right is still there for Irish citizens in the north. A um, couple of areas that were, I suppose I focused on last night, and everyone, we're still at second stage debate. It's ongoing at the moment. 
Some people use this to speak more generally about Brexit, about the impacts, um, but dealing into what the specifics of this bill, one of the really interesting things in the area of transport, and that's to continue to allow cross-border bus travel. So that can be the school bus for kids who go to school in Raffoe but live in Tranorler and Donegal, that they can still actually, that the bus can still cross the border. Um, it also means that Irish people, it's not necessarily, well, it's certainly not, probably not going to happen this Christmas, but a lot of Irish people would have got either, maybe not rail and sail, but the National Express bus across home from London onto the ferry and over. It's to make sure that that can, can still happen, that touring can still happen. When we get out of this pandemic and tourists come back um, into the economy and into society, a lot of them will be on bus tours. They may be American, they may be Japanese, wherever it is. And that bus tour covers all of Ireland, or it's a UK and Ireland tour, but it's the same bus, it's the same guide, and it's to make sure that that can that that can op- continue to operate um, regardless of what happens in the next couple of days. Digging into the bill, there's other other areas looked at in terms of contracts, in terms of financial provisions for people who are doing uh, reinsurance and insurance. It is a really meaty piece of legislation. As I said, it goes to 21 parts. It's very detailed and specific, sectoral specific. Um, The thing about Brexit is it covers every aspect of life. And we go into the next few days, but the next 49 days, unsure of what's going to happen on the 1st of January. And what this piece of legislation does and it's a mammoth task. Like This was prepared over weeks and months by civil servants, coordinated from the Department of Foreign Affairs, but from all government departments, and forces Minister Coveney to have an expertise of, of every aspect of government. It's really an impressive piece of legislation. But this is, um, this is base-level legislation in terms of this is protecting us um, at the minimal level because Brexit is bad full stop. This is literally just tying up the few loose ends that we can. Legislative effect to the memorandum of understanding on the carbon travel area is another big aspect. Um, making sure that people can continue to study east, west, north, south as well. That's it in a nutshell. In terms of the progress, it's still at second stage in the door. That'll wrap up. Uh, can I ask you about that? As, as you say, it's a huge piece of legislation. I mean, it runs through 128 sections and there's parts dealing with health, taxation, extradition, um, all the corporation tax, all the various different aspects of society. Now, you said it's starting the doll now and Minister Coveney is, is the, I suppose, steering it from the back. But are the other ministers, for example, the health minister, for example, the justice minister, are they going to weigh in at the different stages or do you know? No, no what happens with this bill is it gives the relevant line ministers, sectoral ministers, the power to introduce the legislation and to enforce the legislation, but it is brought through solely by Minister Coveney. So what we saw with the first Brexit bill is that committee stage was taken in the Dáil itself. It's a grand committee, the Dáil, because it covers so many different legislative areas. So this isn't now going to get dispersed to 15 different sectoral committees. It will take committee stage will be taken in the Dáil into the Shannon. And one thing that was really interesting, and it'll be when it comes to you, Barry, it'll be something to bear in mind. Last time when it came into the Shannon, the timeline that was so close, we there's cross-party support for this. Like this is no-brainer stuff. And we saw that in the last time. This wasn't opposed at any stage by any party, but there were quite a number of amendments made. And they were made, you know, benevolently, but they were all about giving legislative effect on the need for a border poll, for example. Now, any amendment at the last time when that came in jeopardised the timeline of getting this bill ready in time for because whatever... Because it would have to go back to the door. 
because it would have to go back to the draw. Yeah. So the key part of this legislation is to get it through. As I said, I fully expect this to be passed unanimously. We do not have Eurosceptics in the door. And even if you are Eurosceptic, you'd still want this passed because you'd still want people um, to be able to go and get dental treatment in the north or cataracts or, more importantly, um, to continue to be able to draw their pension, their child benefit, whatever it may be. One aspect I didn't mention, and I really think it's quite interesting, is it deals with um, separated couples, divorced couples, it deals with access to children, it deals to responsibilities as well. So you could have a couple that were married in the UK, have split up, one part, you know, one partner has moved to Ireland or one partner has returned home to Ireland. It still guarantees their rights and everything that goes through in terms of family law aspects. So it's really, really important legislation, regardless of what your thoughts on Brexit as a whole are. Mm-hmm. And just to, to finish in this section, Neil, to, we're recording today on Thursday, the 12th of November. Yesterday, the 11th, was the second stage of the debate. Has that finished now or is that likely to go on for a number of different sessions? Not only are we um, recording on Thursday, the 12th, it's 10 past two by my clock. This should be finished by 5.20 this evening. Um, so right. by the time the podcast goes up, it should have gone through the doll and it'll be making its way uh, to your good selves next week in the Shannon. So it's going to do all the rest of the stages in the doll this week? Uh, that's my understanding, yeah. So it's really actually being pushed through quite quickly. It's a lot of pressure on TDs to deal with all the issues in it. It is, but a lot of these issues aren't new. As I said, a number of them were raised and dealt with the first piece of uh, Brexit legislation, the then Brexit omnibus bill. And a lot of these have been flagged consistently since July. Uh, there hasn't been either a question on promised legislation or another debate that hasn't touched on this. And as I said, this piece of legislation, it's it's been formulated, there's been buy-in. There's nothing in this that's controversial. There's nothing in this that... Um, it's confusing or contradictory. It just is very all-encompassing. And it's, it is the ultimate sweeping exercises to, to make sure that if we, what may have been seen as temporary arrangements can allow, can are enabled to be permanent come the 1st of January when the UK leaves the EU. There are elements of this bill that should be, that could potentially be tidied up anyway in the, in a, in a, an agreement on the future relationship between the EU and the UK as a whole. But this is to make sure that Ireland is in the least worst position uh, to, to face Brexit um, come the 1st January. Yeah, thanks. Noel, can I bring you in? Because obviously you have a kind of a bird's eye view on all of the complications that come with Brexit being the chief executive of EMI. Um, wh- wh- what do you think about the bill? I don't know if you've had a chance to digest every aspect of it, but you'd be very familiar with all the policy implications of what's in it. Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks, Barry. And I suppose the first thing from a European Movement Ireland perspective, and it might be a little bit simplistic, but, you know, what 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 struck me when I looked at it and when you just see it written down in stark and plain language, withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union, consequential provisions bill 2020. And that's the reality of what we're dealing with. But the Pandora's box and the complexities that it has led to um, as, as Neil has outlined, is, is incredible. And obviously, from a European Movement Ireland perspective, we, we whilst respecting the, the, the Brexit decision, um, we never shied away, uh, nor have we done so since the, the referendum of our belief that Brexit will be, uh, will be bad for the UK, for Ireland and for the EU uh, more broadly. And that's our fundamental starting off point. And from all it, how it touches and impacts upon every aspect of our lives on 
on, on this island, on our nearest neighbours in the UK and more broadly across the EU, I, I, I think isn't perhaps, um, uh, it is, tends to be a little bit underestimated, I fear, by our, our nearest neighbours. Um, and, and I also think, I think, you know, from an Irish perspective as well, um, with, with less than 50 days to go to the end of the transition period, um, it is welcome and, and uh, encouraging to see the ramp up and increase in communications uh, from a government perspective in terms of Brexit preparedness. And I know uh, Minister Coveney and uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and across all government departments have significantly ramped up their business supports and encouraging business SMEs. Uh, and you know all of us as as citizens and 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 individuals to get to get ready for what is coming down the track because things are going to change. Uh, we can't afford to be passive in this. We need to be uh, upfront and ahead of it and and really, in addition to psychologically preparing ourselves uh, for this, I think we also need to ensure that very practical and and that the necessary legislative uh, effects are given into measure uh, by the elements that, that Neil outlined in terms of the withdrawal of the bill. But I suppose I'm just, you know, from a European Movement Ireland perspective, Barry, as, as, as your listeners might know, as the longest established not-for-profit uh, voluntary membership organisation here in Ireland, dealing solely with Irish European affairs as our founding aim, the thought and and you know it's it's just it's uh, it, it's uh, very sobering when we see the impact of the withdrawal of what was our classmate along with Denmark. Let's not forget the three of us joined at the same time, and uh, now we're we're we are, we are you know going to be minus the UK around the table, which would have been our closest ally on many things. But I think whatever happens. Um, from an Irish perspective, we do need to be uh, part of the solution in supporting upskilling and the transition on communicating and, and engaging with stakeholders and the public. Because let's not forget, uh, as you all know, sadly, this is going to be a process that is going to continue for months, if not years. You know, I think there's perhaps a little bit of a, a date focus on the 1st of January, and we forget that this is just going to continue and, and go on and go on and go on. Um, as we continue to collectively work to uh, prevent and in work, I suppose, mitigate the, the worst uh, impacts of, of Brexit on, on Ireland, really. You mentioned there the role, Noel, that EMI has had uh, for a long time now, and you've obviously been involved for a long time yourself. Um, I think EMI also monitors Irish attitudes to the European Union over time. Has Brexit changed that? We hear people talking about an Irexit. What, what are Irish views on that kind of thing? Really interesting, Barry. Uh, this is something we have done uh, since 2013, actually, when Ireland held the EU presidency. Um, and one we have asked one uh, common question every year since then, and that's as to whether Ireland should remain a member of the EU. And that finding has never fallen below 80%, right? So as of 2020, when we got Red Sea to pull people in the midst of the, the, the worst impacts of lockdown and the COVID pandemic, 84% of people said that Ireland should remain a member of the EU with only 7% disagreeing. So to be honest with you, th that level of support and sentiment, which of course we cannot take for granted, we have to continue to engage and 
you know, try, uh, keep keep listening and talking to people, which is why we're really looking forward to working with Neil and, and colleagues in the Oireachtas uh, and the Oireachtas EU Affairs Committee, uh, Barry, and also your, you and your colleagues in the Shannon on that conference on the future of Europe, because that's going to be mm-hmm. so important that whatever happens, you know, whatever happens, a close EU-UK relationship in the future is in Ireland's interest, it's in the UK's interest, and it's in the EU's interest. And we strongly believe that Ireland can be a key facilitator and uh, and bridge, if you will, um, in, in that regard. And, you know, let's be honest, the EU and Europe, it's going to be a different place without the, without the UK. Um, we are going to have to work really hard at our future relationship in terms of the other 27 EU member states. What's our strategic, what are our strategic priorities? Um, it's really welcome to see the presence and then the, the important work that DFA and the government is doing in terms of Global Ireland and ensuring that there's an Irish footprint in all of the EU member states, the opening of new consulates um, and the tying in of an Ireland house umbrella. And that's really important. And it's only going to get more important because as a small geographically peripheral member state, um, we probably have to have to work a little bit harder uh, sometimes to, uh, to 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 make our voices heard. But I think we have a real opportunity uh, to do that. And equally, there's an onus and a responsibility on us to do that. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I suppose we now move. We we've always talked about Britain as our nearest neighbour, but in EU terms, that now becomes France on the first of January. Um, how do we? I mean, I know, for example, there have been lots of representations here at various levels from people, particularly in Normandy and Brittany, in terms of direct freight and ferry routes between Ireland and France. But the land bridge will still survive, won't it? So. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, the, I mean, absolutely, the land bridge is, is going to be key, but also the certainty that comes with the increased freight and transport routes that we're seeing in terms of Zeebrugge uh, uh, as well, and the work that is being done in terms of ensuring that Dublin Port and Rosslare are somewhat Brexit-proof and ready for what's coming down the track is, is going to be vitally important. And that and that's all coming into play because of, I suppose, the uncertainty that Brexit has has created, and it's forcing us to look at different uh, business opportunities as well. Um, and and I suppose trying to ensure that although we are somewhat geographically at, at, at the periphery, that we work uh, very constructively to mitigate the worst impacts on our SMEs and secure yeah. our supply chains. Neil might have more. Technical insight. Well, on that. Yeah, I mean, Neil, you were there. You were talking earlier about this bill being part of the framework to continue the permeability, for example, of the land border that we have with the United Kingdom. Are you happy that the bill is going to do that in terms of safeguarding tourism, but also schools, people who work but live on one side of the border, live work on the other? Will the bill safeguard all that for us? Yeah, certainly on this island. Um, East-West is a different story. And I think if we look at the first Brexit omnibus bill, that would have dealt with um, the expansions of Dublin Port, Rosslare Europort, and indeed Dublin Airport from a customs point of view, from a, a veterinary point of view. That's extended in this bill. There's further focus on the customs, customs aspect. And this is the big thing. East-West, there is now going to be a customs border between Ireland and Great Britain. There won't be one north-south with the fulfilment of the withdrawal agreement. And that's really, really important. But we do have the knock-on concerns about then Northern Irish businesses. Do they decide to ship to or through um, 
Great Britain uh, leaving Northern Irish ports or Irish ports. So that's that's part of it. One of the, the key aspects in terms of direct shipping is we look at the level of preparation that's gone on in Ireland for Brexit. We look at the level of preparation in the Netherlands and France in particular. Like the customs officials have been sitting in the port of Calais. I think you visited them, Barry, not so, when you're in a, when you're on the Committee of the Regions. They've been sitting there for 18 months, ready to go. Uh, there are infrastructures there. We don't see that in Great Britain. Dover isn't ready. Hollyhead isn't written, uh, isn't ready. Um, Fishguard, Pembroke. So that is a, that's a major concern, and that's why we are seeing people looking at the direct um, link because the EU, continental EU, is by far Ireland's biggest export market. It's 48%. The UK is only 9%. Noel talks about the UK being one of our classmates joining the EC in 73. Then Ireland exported 55% of its goods mm. to the UK. Now it's gone from 55 to 9 so we look at the continental market, not just as our most important market, but our gateway to other markets. And this is all part of the Brexit preparation, is that continuing diversification of Ireland as an export destination. So we look at France and Germany are now overtaking the UK as export destinations. Belgium is way far ahead because it's a, it's a port of entry. But we're also increasingly seeing our abilities to export through the EU both geographically and most importantly through European trade deals. So there's very interesting document documentary is the wrong word, a, a, a two-minute Twitter documentary for want of a better focus uh, a fortnight ago, which showed the process of um baby milk, baby formula made in Ireland by Nestle, going from Rosslare to China. It went from Rosslare uh, to Ostend in the Netherlands onto a train. 15, 15 days train straight. That was it. There was no large-scale shipping around the Cape of Good Hope or whatever, invo invoking images of Vasco da Gama and Magellan. This uh, I was think they go through the Suez. The Suez, the 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 Suez is yeah. it? But I was thinking of junior search history there. Geography, yeah. <laughs> 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 Neil. Geography. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, or any of those other things. So, But it's also looking at the fact that there's new trade deals being negotiated at the moment by the EU, there's more recent trade deals that have come into effect. So um, Canada through CETA, Japan, South Korea. And these are really big opportunities for Ireland. Ireland is the second largest exporter of evaporated milk into China. And it's not just China, it's Japan, it's Mexico. And we look at the two countries that the EU are currently in trade negotiations with, Malaysia and Vietnam, massive populations, far greater than the UK. And it's looking to see where we can put our produce through the EU because that level of diversification is part of Brexit preparations. It's looking at the UK and going, okay, quite a bit of our agri-food product goes there. So how do we diversify? How do we get um, Carberry who are producing cheddar cheese have now moved over to Buffalo mozzarella because 82% of our cheddar cheese goes to Great Britain. Not a lot of French people eat Irish cheddar cheese, to be frank. But then most recently, we're starting to see the differing trends. So our biggest export destination for the first quarter of 2020 uh, for pork meat, it wasn't the UK for the first time ever, it was China. And we're looking at all those sort of things to change the focus. Quantity rise, the UK is still a large one. And this is what is the big concern if we don't get an agreement in the next 10 days on future relationship. It is the possibility for um, tariffs and quotas on Irish goods going into uh, Great Britain. And that is particularly worrying in certain sectors. And I'm going to let Noel come in on this because Noel's a farmer's daughter, most importantly. But if we look at the fact that so much of our beef produce goes to 
Great Britain. You cannot buy a McDonald's hamburger in Great Britain without it being Irish beef. How do we make sure that that 40% tariff, uh, how that doesn't devastate an Irish beef industry that's already struggling, to be frank, and there's already so many different areas. We talk about our mushroom industry that lost 10% of its value on currency fluctuation after the referendum alone. A lot of these are high volume, high labour, high yield, but they're very small, narrow margins. And before I hand over to Noel, when we look at the supply chain, um, a lot of the original Brexit preparations, and it's continued in this bill, is in relation to the supply chain. So Ireland has transferred in the last 18 months from a real-time uh, supply chain mechanism to the three or four delay. The UK hasn't done that. The UK can't do that due to quantity levels. And that's why we saw at the outbreak of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, the rush on toilet paper and lager and milk and sliced pans of bread in England whereas we didn't see it here in Ireland. Yes, we saw it during the biblical levels of snow two years ago. That's a different story when you just simply, the supply chain wasn't interrupted. It just couldn't get out of the yard. Mm-hmm. Well, Neil was saying there about um, your view in terms of trade. Obviously, this bill doesn't deal with the trades directly. That deal has to be done between the governments of Ireland and the government of the of the of Great Britain, I suppose, in real terms, because it doesn't affect Northern Ireland. Are you confident that Michal Martin, who said was saying in the media this week that Britain wants a deal, are you happen to, happy that they will do that deal? Oh, that, that is the, I was going to say it's the million dollar question, but I think it's the trillion dollar question, Barry, at this stage, isn't it? Um, very interesting yesterday, uh, we're, as you said, we're recording this Thursday. On Wednesday, we did um, an event on Irish-German perspectives on the future of Europe post-Brexit with the German ambassador as part of the German presidency of the EU, the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and Minister Simon Coveney. And I asked him a question. I said, well, okay, so minister, are we going to have white smoke? Are you, are you optimistic? And he was very clear in saying, it's quite possible uh, that there won't be a deal. It will all fall apart, but a deal is looking more likely than not, but we have to be cautiously optimistic. And that agreement is difficult, but it is doable. And again, reiterating the point that no deal is in, is, isn't in anybody's interest, right? Uh, so, if we can take that, the fact there's a little bit of uh, radio silence, um, uh, and I think that's very welcome because the negotiations have reached a very intensive, detailed, legal, technical stage with both sides, led by Michel Barnier on the EU side and David Frost on the UK side, you know, attempting to reach an agreement. But let's be honest and let's be realistic about it. Uh, time is not on our side. The consensus is pretty much, and, and Neil might might have a greater insight level on this than I might have, but the consensus is that a deal would need to be reached by, by mid-November to ensure that there is time for the European Parliament to give its consent before Christmas. So the outer limits, uh, and Barry, I'm sure y- y- you'd give the legal frame on this, but it's the outer limits of mid-November, you know, the 20th of December, or 20th of November, apologies. So, like really when we do say that the Brexit clock is ticking, it is. And I really am concerned and I worry that there isn't an appreciation um, from the UK side um, about the importance of the European Parliament giving giving its consent. And it's not just this bilateral, you know, Westminster bubble that it will all be decided in. And, and I think that's really, really important. And the internal market bill uncertainty complicates things regarding the European Parliament 
And as we know that the Commission has launched infringement proceedings against the UK in early October, the UK failed to reach a deadline, which was the 2nd of November. So again, making all these matters more, more complicated. And these political and legal complications will have to be tidied up before any deal reaches uh, the European Parliament. And in terms of the trade side barriers you mentioned, huge amount of issues are going to remain unresolved and navigating these changes are going to require ongoing communications. But at a minimum, at a starting off point, reaching this initial trade deal and be it as skinny and as light as we sadly think it possibly will be, it is going to be important to get that because that will give a solid foundation to build the future relationship between the EU and UK, rebuild the trust. And, you know, it's in Ireland's interest uh, that, that, that this happens. And in fairness, I think the Irish government and all parties, there's been... I suppose in the main, there has been a welcome donning of the of the green jersey, to use that expression, and a concerted effort to ensure that um, that the Irish perspective, you know, and and that we continue to facilitate and try and remain um, remain the UK's uh, strong allies, whilst obviously uh, in working to ensure that our priorities do continue to remain the best of both worlds, maintaining a strong relationship with the UK, but also safeguarding and protecting Irish access to an EU single market of over 450 million customers and consumers. And that's vital. And can I ask you, Noel, in terms of the, the deadlines, then obviously the European Parliament is not going to sit on New Year's Eve to ratify anything that is decided. Um, what are the, the timelines? I mean, is, is there a last date on which the European Parliament is likely to deal with this? Do you know or have they said? Well, I think they're, they're, it's kind of all dependent, really, I think, on the next on the next uh, week or so. And Minister Coveney was interesting uh, at the conference where he just said that next week, really, uh, in, in his comments, I think that have got a lot of traction. Next week, I would say, is, is, uh, is really the penultimate week um, for, for when a decision can be taken. And then it has to go through the various iterations at a national level. I mean, Neil, from a parliamentarian side of things, I don't know if you if you've any thoughts. Yeah, I, I suppose the the latest date that's being bandied about, and it's not useful to bandy about dates, but is the eighteenth of November, um, for these this phase to be concluded. And you know they've extended talks into next week. They're they're going to be in in London. And a lot of people, when they when they talk, think about the talks, I think it's just Michelle Barnier and David Frost or whoever came before in a room. The talks are done in nine different silos. And then they combine into the heads of the delegation. They're so detailed. And, and this is to get a skinny deal, a thin deal. And that's why there's so many aspects of this won't be covered. In terms of a, a process point of view, be it at a parliamentary level, the fact that this will be probably a fairly raw trade deal um, means that it only needs to get approval of the European Parliament. If it was what is known as a mixed deal, like CETA, the trade deal between the EU and Canada, that would have to get approval of all member state parliaments. Now, you think about Ireland, you think just about the Oireachtas, but in federalised states like Belgium, that requires the approval of the Brussels region, Flanders, Wallonia, as well as the German-speaking region. And we saw the Walloons trying to hold up um, the Canadian trade deal a couple of years ago. So this will be, uh, I suppose, a, a very thin deal, which is, like, there's no such thing as a good Brexit, but the thinner, the worse. The impact for society and where this won't end on the 1st of January, or more likely the 2nd of January, because the 1st is bank holiday, is the areas that can't be covered 
because the EU won't allow them to be covered. And that is of a big interest, um, not just to the British economy, but particularly to Ireland, in relation to financial services. So what the EU brought in 18 months ago, and it was parallel to the first Brexit Omni spill, was about, I think it was 95 preparedness notices. And or Martin Luther's 95 theses was something along that anyway. But that focused on clearing um, deposit deposits and saying that. And each of them have been given various sort of 9, 12, 18 or 24 month periods to allow the to provide that sort of equivalence with the UK to provide that window to negotiate something. And that's why this deal doesn't include services. But it means that, you know, the Brexit negotiating teams won't be stood down if this goes through. If we get an agreement in the next few days, it'll go to the European Parliament that has to pass it at the Trade Committee. I think Sean Kelly, MEP, and Barry Andrews, MEP, wrote the members of that. Then from Westminster, it'll have to go through the House of Commons and indeed the House of Lords. And then how quick that can be done. Realistically, the European Parliament would need at least at least a week because it has to go through group stage. Uh, so they'd probably do some sort of mini plenary week. Um, so it goes through group stage between all the political groups. It would go into committee stage, which I mentioned already, and then into a plenary session as well. Now, all these are being done by remote votes. So it's, it's a little bit of logistics that goes in. The big bonus, I suppose, is that whatever Michel Barnier negotiates, he negotiates with an extremely narrow mandate given to him by the European Council and the European Parliament. He is officially appointed by the European Commission because the European Commission negotiates on behalf of the EU. But throughout this process, he is briefed. Obviously, the European Council, you see him every European Council meeting, they talk about Brexit. He briefs, he addressed the last plenary session of the European Parliament. The Brexit steering group in the European Parliament has consistently had meetings with him throughout. The flip side in the UK, and this is why these are quite complicated talks, and we saw this under Theresa May uh, a couple of times, is that there's no equivalent process for them to maintain um, the agreement of the House of Commons. So you could have a situation that Lord Frost brings back an agreement, gives it to Boris Johnson. He says, yep, this is the best we're getting or the worst we're getting or whatever it is. And he puts it to Parliament. And let's bear in mind, we talk about Boris Johnson's majority. He's got a 90-seat majority, the blue wall uh, through Northern England. But Boris Johnson's opinion poll numbers are down for a start. Secondly, we see all sorts of reports of resignations in number 10. Um, but thirdly, the people who are the most hardline about Brexit, the European Research Group, the people who say, let's go WTO, who haven't rashes about the impact of it, they are also the very same people who have rebelled over COVID-19 um, restrictions. So he, Boris Johnson, has to be able to get a deal that can appease the most rabid of Brexiteers. Um, which is not something that's easy to do. Theresa May failed to do that, I think, four times. Um, and whether Boris Johnson's, who I have no problem that whatever's negotiated um, by Michel Barnier will be approved by the European Parliament and in turn the European Council. A little bit more of a, a doubt over what can be agreed in the UK. And if we do get an agreement in the next few days, I think it'll be interesting the response. If it's something that the UK is happy with and they've agreed it, so you assume they are, this will be seen as the great big British win. Europe will have capitulated on fisheries or the level playing field or governance. And that will require a level of maturity on the EU side that we generally have seen certain MEPs, and I won't name them, name them and get accused of myself at times, are a little bit more contentious about this. But it's a matter of going, yep. Yeah, Look, you know, lads, ha have your win if that's how you need to sell it or perceive it. Because ultimately, a no deal 
regardless of what we've achieved in this um, Brexit le- legislation that's currently going through the door, and you'll soon decide on in the Shannon, a no deal it would be absolutely devastating to Ireland from an economic point of view. It'll be very bad for the EU, not as bad as it will be to Ireland, but the country that suffers the most, of course, is the UK. Mm-hmm. And actually, um, Barry, sorry. on that, if I can just comment yeah. exactly what Neil's point there, really interesting. From our conversations um, across the board in a non-partisan sense in Westminster and across the UK, it's it's really interesting. The big takeaway um, that, that, uh, that our, our British friends have asked me to take on board as an Irish person was, you know, to fully respect that um, economic arguments have never been the most important thing for uh, Brexiteers. So we've always been cautioned, you know, oh, but look, it's going to hit people and businesses and British businesses and people in their pocket. And there is, as we all agree, there is an undeniable economic rationale for concluding an agreement, for coming to uh, a solution and some sort of uh, a, a trade deal in all its its skinny light versions, but um, you know political and emotional arguments held sway in the 2016 referendum. And to be fair, it's probably something that we didn't uh, fully appreciate and recognise at the time. And because the economic logical case presented by the remainers, um, it failed to to cut through. And the question now. Um, as Neil has has mentioned, is whether those uh, Brexiteers um, who form the majority of the, of, you know, of the British government and, and the overwhelming majority that the Tory uh, party has, are they more influenced by economic rationale now that they are in government and are accountable for their decisions against the backdrop of what's happening with the COVID pandemic? Or do you merge all the challenges and complexities of the economic crisis caused by COVID, caused by a crash out no deal Brexit, and uh, possibly blame the, you know, the EU and Brussels in that regard. But you would hope that that uh, the economic rationale of getting a deal, uh, you know, it just would be uh, incredible to think that that wouldn't cut sway in terms of the challenges facing the British economy due to COVID pandemic, along with all uh, other member state um, uh, economies. You'd hope so. But I think we have to be really, really cautious about, about whether whether we'd bet the house on it. Yeah, and both of you have said that there is no good Brexit. This is going to damage us no matter what the deal is, no matter what amendments or not are made to this bill or to the trade deal with the UK. Can I ask you both, notwithstanding that there is no good Brexit, what are the positives? <laughs> what can we actually say might be good for Ireland out of this? I had a conversation with a French colleague the other day about kids coming here to learn English, for example, that won't be able to or won't want to go to the UK. Are there any advantages for Ireland in Brexit? Anything good? Noel? I think an interesting uh, positive out of the negative is that it is forcing us as a country uh, and as as a people and as a society to question and interrogate where we see ourselves on not only the European stage, but the global stage. What is important to us? What values do we hold precious? And how do we want to shape and influence uh, Ireland's uh, position, I think, particularly on a European stage? We have seen an increasing, you know, whether it's it's the Hanseatic League, whether it's greater uh, coordination and cooperation 
with the Nordics, with the with the with the Baltic countries on different matters. Likewise, in terms of France is now going to be our nearest geographical uh, neighbor in the EU, as as you as you mentioned, Barry, and it's also forcing us to be. To, to to loosen the let go of the comfort blanket of having uh, the UK and maybe cogging, cogging the homework, uh, you know, for, for, for many years and, and being dependent on that and actually interrogating and questioning what are our views and positions on on difficult policy and topics. And it's not going to be easy. It's it's uh, there, there will be challenges around it. We're going to have to compromise. But equally, we're going to have to stand on our own two feet and be a little bit more uh, bulgy and confident about putting forward our, our views. And we're going to have to make sure that we we uh, work with our colleagues uh, in the EU and also our friends in, in the UK uh, to navigate this uncertain road ahead. Neil, any anything good you could say about this or what might come from it? Obviously, I agree with everything Noel has said. From, I suppose, the brass tax economic point of view, it certainly accelerated Ireland's abilities to look at different markets, which is a positive thing. Um, there is a fact that the sheer fact that come the 2nd of January, we will be the only uh, English-speaking common law jurisdiction um, in the European Union. It will be the obvious gateway, not just for UK businesses, uh, looking to stay connected to the world's largest economic bloc, but also particularly North America, be it Canada oh, yeah. or the USA. And we've already seen quite a number of financial services entities not relocate or, or, or move to, to Ireland, to Dublin in particular, um, like they may have done for Frankfurt or Paris, but in a far more complementary role, look to divert, look to grow what they've already got here. So Barclays, for example, a bastion of British um, banking, has gone from having maybe 100 people employed here in Dublin to 385. They've moved billions worth of assets into that with that as well. And those jobs, and we see it with lots of different financial institutions, um, and it also pays influence if you are looking to invest in a European state the UK is no longer an option. You have Ireland, though. Um, and then within the EU itself, it forces us to go outside our comfort zone. Um, as Noel said, um, the new alliances, of course, is, is one aspect. But my great hope is that it forces the way we look at Europe and European politics in a different way. What we've had previously is we, we kind of take it for granted and we kind of dismiss it. And the EU is a very easy punching bag when you need it. Blame Brussels, you know, lash out. But what we've seen in the UK in particular is that you can't knock something for 45 years and then in six weeks convince people why they should remain in it. Mm-hmm. So it's not but we've generally been quite good at that in Ireland, haven't we? Acknowledging the strengths of the European Union. We could be a lot better. And I say that as a politician, I say that as critical of other politicians. And at the end of the day, we did reject two European treaties yeah. for... Yeah. weren't relevant to the treaty. Noel and I would have worked closely together on the European uh, the Fiscal Compact Treaty, the Stability and Growth Pact. And um, it was remarkable. That was a referendum campaign about the most narrow focus of any European referendum campaign in relation to uh, finance. And yet we still had people talking about abortion and conscription into the European Army. Yeah, yeah. Um, for which there's no basis, in fact. Not at all. And that's yeah. the problem. And I think as national parliamentarians like ourselves and indeed colleagues from across the aisle, we need to bring that European dimension into national politics. And that goes for every member state. Um, you know, 
people in Italy who had a very strong, increasing Eurosceptic movement, France as well, are looking at Brexit going like, ah, lads, don't want any of that. Mm -hmm. And it's probably, we've seen populism is on the the wane across Europe, thankfully. And it's very, very right-wing populism. Here we tend to have a left-wing populism, same Mm -hmm. as the Spain, so to Portugal, so to Greece. Um, And it's certainly something that, hopefully will allow us to be a lot more cognizant of what goes on in the continent and that our newspaper and TV subscriptions make it beyond London. Yeah. Um, just one thing you said there, Neil, about being the last English-speaking common law jurisdiction. I think, is Malta not an English-speaking country? I know Malta is the first official language, but I remember when I was on the Committee of the Regions in anticipation of Brexit, a lot of people saying we'd be the last English-speaking country and therefore there would be no member state left to nominate English as a working language of the European Union. And that was actually came up. There was an MEP straight after the referendum. I think she was German. She might have been Latvian who demanded that English be removed as a working and official language. Uh, but thankfully, a working language doesn't actually have to be a language of a member state. Of Does one member state not have to nominate the, nominate that as their? Not for the, the. There's three official working languages: the EU, French, German, and English. Regardless of yeah. the EU being in it, that's great. Um, but Maltese, of course, is an official language of the European Union, as is Kubitfukla Osquelega, and you're both Gaelgor, so I'm not going to try and <laughs> go down that route. But yes, of course, Malta will be a um, an English-speaking population, but I think there's more people speak Italian in Malta. Yeah. Than um, yeah. However, we are the only common law jurisdiction. That's right, yeah. yeah I, think, I think we go with the line that we, we are the largest, but interesting, uh, Barry, we are hearing from our international colleagues, which go, we have national councils as far afield as Armenia and Azerbaijan, but also talking uh, on the ground in Brussels across the various institutions. As a result of Brexit, actually, there's there's a demand uh, and an increasing focus on French coming back in, uh, you know, with more of the official um, correspondence and communications uh, yeah. taking place through the medium of French, because as as Neil as Neil might recall, back at the start of you know uh, 2010 2011, a lot of the European Movement International conferences, just to use my own uh, parent association as an example, would have been held bilingually in French and English. About five five six years ago, they went solely to English, which um, is just it's, it's interesting as English became more of the lingua franca, really. Yeah. Although I must say, yeah. 2004 with the yeah. with the big expansion, expansion, and yet a lot of them speak German, Neil, don't they? I mean, a lingua franca had a lot of meetings with Polish and Eastern European mm-hmm. colleagues. German is is their preferred kind of common language, for sure. And if you go back to the Irish people who went over as the original functionaires, you wouldn't even dreamt of a career at the European institutions without having like fluent French, not even proficient French, that, that's gone. It's not that you can get away with it, but you can take your Concord in any two languages. And one thing we have to mention is there is a distinct lack of Irish people working in the European institutions. The government under Minister Byrne are running a really important campaign with EMI in relation to EU jobs. But one of the key things, and it was fought so hard for by successive Irish governments to get it, was the designation of Irish and sufficient language. I'm going to turn this on you, Barry, as, as, as a Gaelgor who's also a, a barrister, is that there is a lack of Irish lawyer linguists yeah. considering a career in the EU. Like to say these are good jobs, never mind financially, but in terms of the return and the quality of work. And the one message to anyone that we can get out there, and we have to use every forum, so I'm hijacking your podcast to do it now, is not only to work with our languages, but to look at careers in the key, the core European institutions as well as the agencies, because we have a massive gap 
Um, we had the golden generation of Irish um, functionaries like Catherine Day and David O'Sullivan. But we have a gap, and I can say this as someone who lasted two years in Brussels and then came home, there is a lot of Irish people missing in that who should be taking yeah. us and, and, and can I can I hijack it, Barry, as well, and mm. to fully reiterate what Neil said, um, the under Minister for European Affairs Thomas Byrne, it's really welcome to see the increase in focus on that EU jobs and making sure that we have an Irish pipeline across the EU institutions at all levels. And interestingly, our most popular European movement, Ireland. Uh, the publication or subscription information resource that we do for decades is our Thursday EU Jobs Bulletin. We have thousands and thousands of uh, subscribers to it. And very interestingly, talking to people working in the perm rep in, in Brussels or in the different bodies and institutions, and they've, and, you know, they've... The, they've the perm rep is our, is our diplomatic representation in Brussels for Ireland. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So think of it like, I suppose, Ireland's embassy to the European mm. Union, very, very simplistically. Um, and there are huge job opportunities. There's huge internship opportunities. Um, so, uh, and for example, um, there's also, uh, we have a really good resource called the Green Book, which is the Bible for people looking to get information. Well, to, so to complete the hijack then, Noel, uh, how can people get that information? Where should they go to find out about jobs in Brussels or the rest of the European Union? Yeah, if you log on to our website, europeanmovement.ie, and subscribe to our weekly EU Jobs Bulletin. And if you download the Green Book, it's a little bit like the size of Neil's Brexit omnibus bill. It's uh, hundreds and hundreds of pages, but it's written by job seekers, Irish job seekers who've made it, who've gotten up the career ladder in Brussels for those coming along the track. So it's really relevant and really practical tips. And it's a, a fantastic resource. And we really want to stress upon your listeners, if we can, exactly what Neil said. It's There's great opportunities there for people to go and work for the agencies, you know, the parliament, the commission, but also the other bodies. Like people mightn't be aware in Lachlanstown, Barry, which I know isn't too far from yourselves. We have the yeah. European Foundation for Living, Working and Cultural Conditions. So huge, yeah. huge opportunities. Yeah, no, that's great. And I endorse what both of you have said about that. But we will draw to a close there. Uh, Noel O'Connell, Chief Executive of European Movement Ireland, thank you so much for joining me. Neil Richmond, TD for um, Dublin Rathdown, thank you also. Thank you both for your, your insight and your expertise. Um, hopefully, uh, this bill will smooth the transition to the greatest extent possible and hopefully the deal that needs to be done on a UK-EU uh, trade front uh, will also happen and the, the we will have as little turbulence as possible. But as both of you have said, it's all bad news in many respects. Um, so fingers crossed for that. But thank you both for joining me. Um, thank you for listening and downloading this podcast. Uh, we'd encourage you to subscribe to the podcast and to let other people know about it if you think it's interesting. You can certainly comment anytime or contact me, Barry Ward, at barry.ward at aroctus.ie if you have any comments. But thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Irish Legislation Podcast with me, Barry Ward. You can get me on Twitter at Barry M. Ward. Don't forget to subscribe and you won't miss any of the episodes as they come up on a weekly basis while the Oireachtas is sitting.